Well, welcome today. I'm so glad that you're here. My name is Spencer, and today is part eight of our series on the fruit of the Spirit. We're spending nine weeks looking at this really famous, famous passage. Galatians 5, 23 goes like this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And so today, like every other week, um, we're going to follow the same plan where we're just going to take one of these words and then we dive deep. And so today is part eight. So we're going to look at the eighth word, and that is gentleness. The fruit of the Spirit is gentleness. At least that's how the NIV translates this word, as as gentleness. Um, other translations use different words. Uh, some translations, the King James uses the word meekness. Some translations use the word humility. Some translations, uh, the message uses the word, uh, the phrase, not needing to force our way in life. I kind of like that one. Uh, the Greek word here that we've translated as gentleness is the Greek word proutes. And um, uh, one, one definition I, I read of that word means simply this, to quote, the quality of not being overly impressed with yourself. This is what we're talking about here. So the fruit of the Spirit is gentleness, to say that differently. The natural outgrowth of someone who follows Jesus, of lives in Christ, walks in step with the Holy Spirit, is that they would live in gentleness or meekness or humility. They would live where the world doesn't revolve around them, um, live in a way that where they don't come first, where they're not being overly impressed with themselves. This is the, the fruit of the Spirit. Now, of course, this is a fruit of the Spirit because this is what God himself is like. I think about some of the things Jesus said. Jesus uh, said this in Matthew 20, 28. He says, Just as the Son of Man, speaking of himself, did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the description of Jesus. He came to serve others. Where I think about Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, where Jesus gives this great invitation to come and follow him, and he says this, he says, take my yoke upon you, which is another way of saying my, my teaching, my way of life, and learn from me, be my disciple, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So if this is what Jesus is like, he's gentle and humble in heart, meekness, humility, uh, putting others first, then, then we should expect that as we follow him, as we take up our cross and deny ourselves and so crucify our flesh and follow the path of a disciple, that what would happen, the natural outgrowth of this, is that we would begin to reflect His character, the, the fruit of the Spirit would grow within us, that's what fruit does, and that we would grow as well in gentleness, meekness, humility, where we understand the world doesn't revolve around us and we don't come first, but we live a life of service and humility towards others because this is how Jesus Himself lived. Now, today I thought it would be helpful is to dive deep into this idea and to do this by, by going to a, a really helpful passage, a teaching on, on what this looks like in action, this life of humility, of meekness, of gentleness, what it looks like in action. So we're going to go to Philippians chapter 2. This is a really famous, famous, famous passage, and we could spend weeks and weeks and weeks on this passage because there's books and books and books that are written about it. It's just, it's so, um, so rich and deep. And because it, there's so much about it, we're just going to walk our way slowly through this passage to learn from it about what is this life of gentleness, of meekness, of humility look like. So Philippians chapter 2, we're going to read 11 verses. Here's how it starts. It starts like this, therefore, which is always one of the most important words in the Bible. So because of the work of Jesus, because of who he is and what he's done in us, because the gift he's given us in life in him, Paul writes, therefore, if you have any encouragement, from being united with Christ. If any comfort from his love, if any common sharing, 
The way of saying it is like fellowship in the Spirit. If any tenderness and compassion, if you can say yes to any of these things, then that means that you have received the gift of the gospel. You've received the gift of the, of the life and hope and peace that, that is found in God through Jesus Christ. And so if that's true, then you can't keep living as you, as you were. You, you, you can't keep living like you haven't received this gift. And so he says, here's, here's what you do with that. So if you have those things, then verse two, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. So live in unity, having the same love. And of course, this is the love that we have in Jesus Christ being one in spirit and of one mind. And of course, the one mind is the mind of Christ. So we look to his interest and not to our others, not to our own, I mean. And it comes verse three and four, really, really good verses here. Verse three, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. So notice that phrase, selfish ambition. There is a kind of ambition that is an ambition for the kingdom of God a kind of ambition about serving others, about making a difference, about making an impact in this world. And then there is selfish ambition, which is about self-interest. So do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Don't live like that. Instead, the next verse, rather in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of the others. Now, once again, just like so many other places in the Bible, we have a, a point of decision that's before us. So how are you going to live? Are, are you going to live in the way of the world, which is selfish ambition and vain conceit? And that was true in Paul's day. It's certainly true in our day. Or are you going to live into this way of Jesus, which is, as we read here, not looking to our own interests, but, but living in this humility and looking to others? So as we, as we think about this, this choice that's between us, this fork in the road, we have to realize then that to live according to the way of Jesus, towards humility and living for others, is going to mean that we have to swim upstream against how the world works, how our culture works, the messages we receive from the world, and what just kind of feels natural to us. And so if you think about the, the nature of the world that we live in and what it means to swim upstream against that, I mean, we just need to pause and, and just kind of think about our culture and what this looks like and, and this, uh, the message that we receive from, from the world about how to live and, and what's, um, what it is that, that the world wants us to live into, what that stream is pushing us towards. And, and as we think about our world, you know, we live in a day and age that is increasingly secular, which means simply that we are living increasingly outside of caring what God says about how to live life and his influence and his teaching. And this is honestly true for Christians as well. Many Christians live with a secular mindset that does not look to the wisdom that God gives us, the revelation that God gives us about how to live our lives. So it's increasingly secular. Um, it's increasingly individualistic. And of course, that makes sense because as you remove God from how you think about the world, then you have to rely on something else. And that, of course, is usually ourselves. Um, it's also increasingly hedonistic, where we put pleasure and happiness as the kind of the cornerstones um, our, of our lives. So it's increasingly secular, it's increasingly individualistic, and it's increasingly um, um, hedonistic. And this shows up with some of the things that you might hear people say about how to live life and kind of the platitudes that are spoken sometimes about life. So it's, it's common to hear people say things like, you know, it doesn't matter what you do as long as you're happy. 
right? There's a common kind of idea about how to live life. Or you might hear people talk about how you need to be true to yourself, or you need to follow your heart, you need to live your truth, you need to live your authentic self. And as you listen to the kind of the platitudes that are spoken about the world and the direction the world wants us to live, it's it becomes very clear if you have discerning ears that what you're going to hear is a lot of talk about ourselves. And so we have virtues that start to get lifted up in our culture, virtues like self-discovery and self-expression and self-actualization and self-fulfillment. And as you pay attention to the virtues that get lifted up in our culture and in the world we live in, there's so much here about self. It's self, 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 self. And this is really one of the bedrock ideas of postmodernism is this emphasis on, on self. And so when you consider the pressure, the, the way that the stream of the world is flowing, it's, it's, it's very clear that Philippians chapter 2 has a lot to teach us and a lot to say to us. But here's a question that I've been thinking about this week is, is um, what do you think happens when self becomes a primary virtue for how you live? And what happens in, in like all kinds of ways, all the relationships we have when things like self-fulfillment and self-discovery and self-expression, self, 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 what happens when those kinds of ideas become your virtues? Like what happens in families? What happens in schools? What happens in churches? What happens in our city? when those are the kinds of virtues that that start to get lifted up. And I don't think I'm going to go out too much on a limb here to say that it, the more we live like that, the more um, dysfunction starts to filter into all kinds of relationships that we have. Um, I can't help but but think about um, this, this question of what the impact is of living for ourselves and not think about a, a writer and a thinker who has had a deep impact on my own thinking and, and, and um, processing of, of life. And that's a writer by the name of Edwin Friedman. I've lifted him up before. Friedman is a, a leadership writer. He's a, a rabbi. He was a, um, a leadership consultant. He consulted Fortune 500 companies as well as presidents in the Oval Office. And before he died, he wrote this incredible book called A Failure of Nerve. I've lifted this up in sermons before because it's been so influential into my own, my own thinking. But one of Friedman's observations that I've I found to be so interesting is that as our society, our culture, our world has progressed, and you think about medicine, technology, science, um, economics, those kinds of things, we've also regressed emotionally and socially. And so one of Friedman's ideas was that the way that we've regressed and the way he describes this is that we have uh, grown to live in what he describes as chronic anxiety. So the more we've come to focus on our own self, what he would say is we've grown to become much more individually and corporately chronically anxious. Now, where this gets really fascinating to me and really helpful in my own thinking is that he lays out um, some framework for the way that this chronic anxiety starts to infect the relationships that we have, whether that's in our families, in our schools, in a classroom, in a business setting, at work, or if it's in a, a church, a city, or even our nation. So I'm going to quickly, I'm going to quickly walk through these five uh, characteristics that he lifts up. And as I do so, tell me if this doesn't sound a little bit familiar. And for some of us, we're going to be thinking of like very specific relationships or places we have where we've seen this kind of stuff. But here's what he teaches. First, Chronic anxiety, this is the impact of living for self. What does it do to us? Well, one of the first things it does is it makes us, as he would describe, 
as becoming highly reactive. We become highly reactive. So this means that we begin to build our, our sense of well-being um, in reaction to other people. So have you ever heard someone say something like, you make me so angry? Well, that's a very reactive approach to life. You make me angry. That's, that's kind of the approach I'm reacting to you. And so for about the last 10 years or so, I've noticed that we have started to talk about things like triggers. And there's trigger warnings that is given when things uh, might get uh, uh, uncomfortable for people. And, and that's a very reactive kind of approach to be triggered by something that someone says. And if you think about how this happens in families, I mean, Thanksgiving's right around the corner. It's likely that around a lot of our tables, there might be some tension in the room where someone says something, and it may even be an innocent statement, but someone else is triggered by that. They react against it, and then they respond in a way that's, that's, that's difficult and, and, and dysfunctional, and, and all of a sudden, you've got this fight that's taking place in a family. It's a highly reactive way to live. Chronic anxiety, living for ourselves, what it does, one of the first things it does is it makes us highly reactive to one another. Now, this highly reactive way of living, this leads us to what he would describe a herding instinct. So today we talk about echo chambers and um, tribalism. Um, this is how we only listen to people who are in our circles. And this makes sense because if truth is just my understanding of truth, it's self, 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 self. Well, if that sense of truth is challenged, I don't want to listen to that. So therefore, I, I retreat to those who don't challenge me and I herd up with, with people who are only like me. And so therefore, in businesses and schools and families, you start to get these factions that form based on uh, this understanding of, of my own truth that I have. This leads to the third characteristic where we adopt what he calls a blame displacement mentality. In other words, we shift the blame away from us and we put it on other people. So we begin to see ourselves as victims of our own um, bad behavior, but we become victims of other people who have made us act poorly and made us act in bad ways. So it's, it's in this kind of thinking, it's not my fault that I lost my temper at that stupid or hurtful thing that you said, even though it was my own emotional immaturity that, that led to that. So I become the victim even when I choose my own self-destruction. This leads to the fourth characteristic, where we look for quick fixes. So instead of taking responsibility and growing up and maturing, getting counseling or as Christians, practicing things like confession and repentance for our, our harm that we cause, we don't allow the slow growth of, of God to mature us. Instead, we look for quick fixes. Um, and so we do things like um, we try to change our circumstances. We maybe jump jobs when things get difficult. We cut people out of our life when things are hard. We Maybe we self-medicate and we're just trying to cover up the pain, cover up the problems. It's all quick fixes and band-aids, all that is. And finally, this leads to a, a failure of nerve in leadership. And some of us know exactly what this is like because um, if you've ever tried to lead in an environment where people are shifting the blame, they're not taking responsibility for their own bad behavior, they're just responding to being triggered by what other people are saying, um, no one is, is um, wanting to actually solve the problem. They just cut people out and they form factions. Like if you ever tried to lead in that environment, you know that that's an almost impossible, impossible environment to be a leader. Now, I find Friedman's work to be so um, helpful in naming some of the problems that we're facing. 
Because as we live in this increasingly secular, hedonistic, individualistic society, we have to understand that what I just described is really just the way of the world. This is the way of culture. We live in a day and age that elevates the self, and this comes with some incredibly destructive things that happen in families and schools and businesses and churches in our city and even in our nation, and we see it happening all around us. It's the natural outcome of what takes place when the self becomes the center of everything. So I go back to Paul, Philippians chapter two. He writes, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. So don't live like the world around you. Don't live these values of self, 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 self. That's how the world lives and it is destructive. Instead, rather, he says, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. Can you imagine what happens if you have a family or a business, a school, a church, a city, where people are are just living for themselves? They're at the center of everything. And as a result of that, they find themselves being triggered, being reactive against one another and forming factions and shifting the blame and not taking personal responsibility. And this is like the nature of, of how those relationships work. And, and can, you, can you imagine like what happens in that school or that business or that family when, when someone decides that they're gonna live differently? And instead of living like, with those same values of self, 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 they decide they're gonna live differently with different values, values that are more like humility and meekness and gentleness. Like what happens in that family? What happens in that marriage? What happens in that business? What happens in that school when, when someone decides that they're not gonna to look to just their own interests, but they're gonna to look to the interests of others? What happens? to all of that anxiety that's wrapped up, that's causing all these problems. Like what happens in that business or that family when someone decides to have the humility to recognize their own sin? And so instead of just putting blame on someone else, they they start to own it and they practice confession and repentance. What happens in that family when, when someone decides that they're gonna be less concerned with being right all the time and instead they're gonna have the humility to serve others even though they disagree with and, and work towards forgiveness? Like what happens when someone is able to, to understand that my life is found in Christ and so therefore I, I don't have to become triggered by all of your anxiety and, and I, I can have the humility of, to approach life with grace instead of anxiety. Like what happens when someone is able to, to correctly see their own sin and their need for a savior and therefore not always be angry at their opposition? This is like what happens when we begin to live in this way of Christ. Well, what happens when someone starts to live like that is they're gonna start to live like Jesus. And in fact, this is what Paul says next, verse two, or the very next verse, verse five, I'm sorry, Philippians two, verse five. He says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So let Jesus be the target for um, how you navigate and relate to the world around you. Let Jesus be the target because if you belong to him and if you live with this mindset, not the mindset of the world of self, 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 but you belong to him, you're gonna live with this mindset of humility and meekness and gentleness instead. 
Now, Paul goes on, he explains the mindset of Jesus in a beautiful um, way. He uses a, a poem. Many people believe this is a very early Christian hymn. So these next few verses were probably a song that the first Christian generation sang together on Sundays. And here's how it goes. Verse six says, who, that is, that is Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. So although Jesus is fully God in every way imaginable, he's not gonna use this for himself because his values are not self, 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 self. Although he could choose to do that, he, he instead, um, he's gonna choose to, to serve because his ambition is not for himself. Even though he is the only one who's ever lived who quite literally everything should revolve around him. He's the Alpha and the Omega. Instead, he is going to give of himself. This is the model, this is the mindset. So verse seven, rather he made himself nothing. The literal, literal Greek there is, is much more powerful than that. It's, it's a emptied himself. So he emptied himself, not of his divinity, but of his prestige and his glory and his comfort. He put all of that aside. And instead of being surrounded by angels who are declaring his praise uh, for all of eternity, Jesus emptied himself and he was born as a helpless baby. He came as a servant. He was born in poverty and obscurity. He didn't come as a tyrant or a warlord or a tycoon of some sort. He came as a humble teacher washing his disciples' feet. This is his mindset. Goes on. So Jesus, he, he took the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And that doesn't mean he, he, he just looked like us. No, he was fully like us, um, made in the image and likeness of God, just like we are. Verse eight, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. He didn't die in a hospital room in comfort. No, he died being tortured and mocked and humiliated. And I just want you to notice in this poem, Jesus just continually takes steps of humility, just steps of humility that eventually lead to the cross. Now, why would he do this? Why not come in power? Why not come as a tyrant? Why not come as a Caesar or a warlord? Why not pursue wealth and power and prestige and comfort and a happy life? Why, why not do that? Because that's what the world does. Why, why not play the same game? Well, because Jesus is less interested in how others think of him. He's more interested in who his father thinks of him. He must be pleasing to his father first and foremost. And this leads to verse nine. So therefore, because of all that he did, God exalted him to the highest place and he gave him the name that is above every name. So while he took the path of insignificance, the father elevates him to greater fame and prestige than any other name. And this is the way of the kingdom of God. You humble yourself, God lifts you up. You lose your life for the sake of, of, of the gospel, you're actually gonna find it in, in, in him. Um, and so verse 10, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So what does gentleness, meekness, humility, not having the world revolve around you, what does that look like? It looks like Philippians 2. Because there is a way of life that is the way of the world, and it's a way of life that is self, 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 self. It's easy to live into that model. It's the pressure that we have all around us. It's the pressure to swim in that direction, to make my own self the center of everything. But to follow Jesus is to swim in a different direction. It's to swim upstream from that pressure. Instead of self-fulfillment, we seek self-denial. Instead of self-discovery, we seek self-sacrifice. And in this, we actually find life. Not destruction, 
but life. I mean, the way of service, the way of humility, the way of sacrifice, this is the way of Jesus. And so if you want to change the world, you want to change your family, you want to change a school, a business, a city, even yourself, it starts with following the way of Jesus. So Paul says, the fruit of the Spirit is gentleness, it's humility, it's meekness. It's not living so the world revolves around you. It's choosing forgiveness, compassion, mercy towards others, repentance, confession, because this is the way of humility. It's the mindset that begins and ends with Jesus as our model. The way of the world, self, 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 self. And that is also the way to destruction. But the way of Jesus, the fruit of the Spirit, gentleness, meekness, humility, service, sacrifice, this is the natural outgrowth of someone who is living their life in Christ. And it is the path, not to destruction, but to life everlasting. Let's pray together. So Father, today, um, as we consider this teaching that Paul gives us here, Philippians 2, it's a rejection of the values of our world that are just all about self. Put ourself first, seeking after our own well-being, making sure that we first and foremost are, are, are happy, we're putting ourselves at the center of everything, where we need to reject these values because they are so destructive. They lead us to anxiety. It leads us to this reactivity. It leads us to pushing the blame on other people. It destroys relationships. When in reality, what you're calling us to is a different mindset altogether, the mindset of Christ Jesus. For some of us, as we think about the destruction that takes place as we live for self, 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 we. We think of our own families, we can see that destruction. We think about the school maybe we work in or go to, we think about maybe our city, we see this take place in our nation, and we don't wanna be those kinds of people. Instead, we wanna follow the way of Jesus, the way of Jesus of humility, the way of Jesus of service, the way of Jesus of sacrifice, the way of Jesus that is gentle in heart. And so Father, as we um, live with your mindset in, in, in our minds, your path before us, would you grow within us this fruit of the Spirit, the natural outgrowth of following Jesus, that we would live like him. He chose the way of the cross. May we choose the way of the cross in our lives as well. I pray for anyone who's with us today who doesn't know the gift of God that's available in Jesus Christ, this new path of life that is available to us and with a simple prayer, we just simply ask, Lord Jesus, would you forgive me my sin and would you lead my life that I might begin to follow you? And so, Father, we thank you for your grace, your mercy that is always before us. And as we press into you, as we follow after you, may we become those who reject the values of this world and instead we choose in humility to serve others. It's the way of Jesus. It's the way of gentleness. In the name of Jesus, we pray today. Amen.